Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. You golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. I'm not sure about this lighting. I don't know. It's a very celestial. A religious vision of Patrick Barclay. I have never seen myself as so arty a form. Look at that. It's just as well it's audio and yeah. not visual. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Football Ruin My Life. podcast that looks at football before 1992 and thinks, oh, that was actually quite good. Today we're going to talk about great goal scorers, and joining me as usual are Paddy Barclay and John Holmes, and I'm going to try and get past, well, it's a cliche, but it's more of a truism than a cliche. Great goal scorers, like great players, would be great at any point in football history. Mm. We know that, but actually, if we take, I think statistically, in English terms, the most impressive goal scorer we have had in our history is Dixie Dean in terms of goals per game. But the way Dixie Dean played, as none of us would have seen him, but we understand that he would have been a relatively orthodox centre-forward in the WM formation of its time, I don't think that kind of centre-forward would have actually caused too much trouble to a well-organised, clever defence with proper tactics and with quick defenders who can recover quickly. By and large, I would imagine once you beat a defender in 1932, you've probably left him for five yards behind. So, Paddy, Mm -hmm. what do you feel about the great Tommy Lawton and the great Dixie Dean? If they played the way they played then, in today's football, would they be great goal scorers? Well, yes, because they'd adapt. But I think if you can put the ball in the net, that's why they're paid the most and so on. But of course they weren't then because they were all on the maximum wage. They paid the same as the right back. But yes, I think they would have adapted because that ability to put the ball in the net is something that, well, they say it can't be coached. Although what you often find, and John's friend and mine, really, Gary Lineker, you know, if you look at him when he was a young man, even after he'd moved to central striker, his, his figures improved, as did Alan Shearer's as he got to the middle 20s. I suppose you can self-teach. It's still true that a striker is a striker. My only problem with goal scorers is I find it, along with goalkeeping, the most boring part of the game. Well, that's all because that's the most spectacular, the one that people go to watch great Yes, I know, I know. The fault lies in me. 
I found Ian Rush boring. And Ian Rush, whose career overlapped with that of Lineker, Rush was a wonderful striker. And in my opinion, Lineker's career is acknowledged. I think Rush, for some, perhaps because he played alongside Kenny Dalglish, the yes. great Kenny Dalglish, yes. the glow, the almost celestial glow of Dalglish took the eye away from Rush. But Rush was a great goal scorer, a great goal scorer, not necessarily a great footballer. But that kind of ruthless finishing, I don't find it terribly exciting. I like artful finishers. And there I would talk of Jimmy Greaves, yeah. Robbie Fowler. I mean, Robbie Fowler would find cheeky ways of beating goalkeepers. Ask Peter Schmeichel. Just ask Peter John, Schmeichel. Robbie Fowler, interesting thought here, because to me, and it's just my personal opinion, Robbie Fowler was a great natural goal scorer. And Michael Owen, who succeeded him, as it were, in the Liverpool side, was not the same kind of natural goal scorer that Robbie Fowler was. Well, according to Glenn Hoddle at one point, he wasn't even a natural finisher, <laughs> a remark which came back to haunt him. The fact is, there are lots of different ways to score goals. Leicester had a finisher, their high scorer, in fact, Arthur Rowley. Now, Arthur Rowley was renowned for just hitting the ball very, very hard mm-hmm. with his left foot. And he scored lots and lots of goals, 250-odd in 300 games, something like that, for Leicester. And then he went on to score another 100 for Shrewsbury afterwards. He even scored one or two for Fulham, Paddy. Yeah, well, they can't double. Was he the brother of Jack Rowley of Manchester? No, he was the cousin. The cousin, because Jack Rowley of the 1948 team, the team that won the Great Cup final against Blackpool 4-2, he was known also for a thunderous shot. So there must have been something in that family. I think Arthur Rowley still has the highest Listen, number correct, of goals. correct it. He was his brother. Ah, I thought right. Was. So there was something genetic there yeah. that yeah. they either had brilliant eye-foot coordination or yeah. they simply had a lot of power in the legs. But they were both known for relying on power in the yeah. way of some West Indy fastballers would rely on pace. There were all the great goal scorers of... <laughs> that sort of late 50s and 60s. There was one in the lower leagues who actually propelled Peterborough into the league. There's a man called Terry Bly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He yes. went on yeah. to... Norwich? He went to Norwich in their cup run. I think he was then very prominent. In, in and 59. eventually to Coventry, I think. Yes. But there were all sorts of people who scored lots and lots of goals in the lower divisions. Nowadays, they would undoubtedly, I think, move on to the higher level. But in those days, they didn't. Some people were dismissed as just good goal scorers. A fellow called Barry Thomas, who went from Leicester to Mansfield, scored loads and loads of goals, and then got transferred up to Newcastle and didn't score very many. had to go back to the lower divisions. Do you know who the Englishman was who had the highest percentage of goals per game in his career? I did look it up, I have to be honest. What, a bloke who only played one game and had... No, 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 no. He played 250-odd games. The highest percentage... Percentage of goals per game played. There must be a qualification to that, isn't there? No, I mean, his career ended at the age of 26 when he fell over the Berry goalkeeper. Brian Clough would be the answer, yeah. Yeah. I think for the national team, Stanley Mortensen would be up there. Stan Matthews is colleague at that international level, yeah. But... Most of Clough's goals were not scored in the top division. No, no they were scored so. for Middlesbrough rather than Sunderland. Yeah. yeah, But, you know, goal scoring, to me, it's individual goals. I, I mean, 
To me, one of the greatest goal scorers, I've only ever seen one of his goals, was Ronnie Radford because of that goal he scored. Well, there's a distinction between great goal scorers and scorers of great goals. Well, that's undoubtedly a great goal. The other fellow that springs to mind, a man who was voted best player of all time, I think, at two clubs, Ken Wagstaff, at Mansfield and at Hull, Hull, scored loads and loads of goals on a continuous basis. Now, Wagstaff certainly... Had was it a bloke called Chilton? Chris Chilton playing inside left. Yeah. Widening the discussion slightly, I know Gary always pays very generous tribute to Peter Beardsley in terms of the goals that Gary scored when playing for England. So, is it a greater skill to be a lone goal scorer in the way that perhaps I don't know Dixie Dean and Brian Clough and those players were? Or is it diminishing the goal scoring somewhat if you are the finishing nature and you have a wonderful assister? This is a bit like managers and assistants. Yeah. Yeah. There are certain players that work in certain situations with other players. Tony Woodcock scored a lot of goals with Peter With. Peter With scored goals with Woodcock as well. Gary Birtle scored goals, but then moved to Manchester United and didn't score very many goals. Mm-hmm. Fascinating how certain players in certain situations, certain team situations, mm-hmm. score a lot of goals. The best ones, of course, go on, they score goals for everyone. The great joke, of course, was what was the first question asked by the American hostages when they were released from the embassy in Tehran? First question was, has Gary Birtle scored yet? <laughs> Because yeah, it was the entire time that they incarcerated 444 days in their embassy. I think Gary Burke scored for United at all. Yeah. And then they compounded it by buying Peter Davenport did the same thing. They did. Yeah. And who was the person who gave the assist for Gary Lineker's first goal for England? Who was that? Peter Davenport. Was it Peter Davenport? Okay. Mm. But not for Manchester United. I mean, you're talking about highest proportion of goals scored for England. I think David Nugent played two minutes and scored, didn't he? Mm. (laughs) Never played again, I think. The fact is, there are lots and lots of ways to score goals. Gary Lineker always argues to me that actually this thing about being in the right place at the right time, Mm. he always says, no, it's not. You just make hundreds and hundreds of runs, Mm. the same run. Most of the time, the ball doesn't come to you. And then on the whatever it is time, it just comes and all you do is tap it in the net. I mean, this chap Harland, Gary said to me, they're saying the things that he does are just the same as me. The fact is, though, he's about three inches taller. He's possibly quicker. He's very much stronger. I mean, he is built like a beast. Yeah. But they're all tappings. Mm. He's no Arthur Rowley, is he? Thundering no. them in from 30 yards. No, and the goals that you remember, if you mention a great goal, the first goal that comes to mind is Bobby Charlton against Mexico in 1966. Yeah. I mean, that was just the most wonderful goal. And in the context of that terrible 90-minute draw against Uruguay, it lifted an entire nation. It was a yeah. wonderful goal. I don't remember, with all due respect to Gary, no question, a great goal scorer. He scored one goal for England from outside the area. How many? One. And it was a clip over the advancing goalkeeper. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't diminish what he achieved. It's simply a recognition that it's a different It's, it's way, different ways, is yeah. it not? Yeah. Mm. And great goals are different. You're right. Grief scored all sorts of types of goals. He did score tap-ins. He scored ones where he beat four or five yes. men. Yes. But in the manner of George Best or the Maradona goal, and so on and so on. Gert Muller 
I remember once having a conversation with Terry Venables and we were trying to put Lineker into the context of international goal scorers. I said, what about Gert Muller? And he said, the interesting thing about Gert Muller was he scored a lot of goals facing the wrong way. Lineker scored them on the run into a position, whereas Gert Muller turned yeah, and scored. Yeah, yeah, I think that final goal against England in 1970 was a turn. Yes. He also won in the cup final, the World Cup final against Holland. I mm. think you'll find that one was a sort of almost facing the wrong way and then turning. Yes, and Muller had that, what they politely call a low centre of gravity, yeah. in that he had short legs and a big ass. And Kenny Dalglish was the same. He could yes. turn people. I mean, they come in from behind. He loves that because he can turn them. Muller was exactly the same. That goal you just referred to was that. Now, I don't think Gary had that option. Very few players do, really. So he had to score goals from other ways. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Gary's career was that of the professional gambler. And if you look at Haaland, exactly the same. The defence trying to work out where Haaland was gambling on receiving the ball. By and large, if Haaland got it, it was in the net. I don't really remember Lineker. Miss. I'd love to see a video of Lineker's most famous missed chances. I think it'd be a fairly short well, the video. The famous one was the penalty against well, Brazil. Yes, too true. far out, probably. <laughs> at least it was on target. <laughs> yeah, it was on target. Yeah. It was on target. Unlike Kane, who missed one... England and Glenn Hoyle never want to write down a Tottenham player said at least he missed it positively. (laughs) That was one of the great bits of punch. The thing though about great goal scorers is I think that they have an insatiable desire to score, score and score again. Mm -hmm. And yes, they are selfish. They do not pass when they can score themselves. In that, strangely, Vardy is who... I wouldn't think Vardy's known as a what you'd call a kind, generous soul. But in terms of on the football pitch, he is a kind and generous soul. His assist record is greater. And Kane, actually, has now become a person who provides a lot of assists. A lot of people always said he'd end up as a, a 10, you know? Yeah. Because he is a very good passer and he's got great vision. Goal scorers They're like sharing score a... penalties, don't yeah. they? Yes. Interesting. You look back to the 50s and 60s. Number nines and forwards didn't necessarily take penalties. A lot of fullbacks took no, penalties. that's right. There was a man called Stan Lynn, wasn't there? Yes, Aston Villa. Aston, Aston Villa. Villa scored a load yeah. of goals from penalties. Mr Alf Ramsey, I think, scored a lot of goals from penalties. Yes, and Leicester had a centre-back, Ian King. He scored a lot of goals from penalties. Well, the Liverpool, Phil Neal scored the Liverpool penalties, didn't he? Yeah. And Alan Kennedy. But I think now it's almost regarded... You're number nine, yeah, you're you a goal it. scorer, yeah. you take the penalties. Yeah. And that's part of their makeup that they have to have that desire to score and not only yeah. score one, score two, three, four. One thing, I, if we talk about Greaves, and most people are under a certain age talk about Greaves as one of the great England strikers and so on. I think to call Greaves a striker is to say that Van Gogh was a bit of a dauber. I mean... <laughs> Greaves was a great footballer who happened to score a lot of goals. I don't think he'd have worked out the art of finishing in the obsessive way that Lineker or Haaland would, or Gert Muller. He liked to play. It's no coincidence that so many of his best-remembered goals are the two where he doubles back, beats four men, and slips it past the keeper. You know, when I said earlier, I don't like strikers... 
I like the kind of footballer for whom scoring isn't quite enough because it's not artistic enough. I remember two of my favourite footballers, both Cantona and Bergkamp. I was saying to them, why do you not score? And they both admitted that they didn't really like tap-ins. They couldn't see the point of them. A schoolboy could do tap-ins. That was their attitude now, just as, well, Gary's not here, or he'd give me a boxing round the ears for saying that, because the schoolboy wouldn't be there to, to get the tap-ins. But you know what I mean? And Cantona actually said, look, I'm getting better. I'll allow myself to claim the tap-ins now. I don't think Bergkamp ever liked the tap-ins. Unless there were, you know, that one he scored, I think it was at Leicester. It was, yeah. I know which one you're referring to. He sort of turned past Matt Elliott and then volleyed it. Yeah, yeah. and he scored the same goal for Holland in the last minute of a World Cup tie against Argentina. There's some players that actually didn't really think a goal counted if it was too simple. Well, the great goal scorers have changed. Like, they're so much more mobile now. And, and to go with Paddy's belief in what constitutes a great goal scorer is a great footballer who scores goals. Mm. I mean, there are so, you know, it's not just the Manchester City, but the general trend for the last few years has been to develop footballers who can score goals, the mobility and the cleverness mm. and, that mm. and so on. I do understand that. There used to be that situation of the number five look for the number nine. And that was his man for the mm. day. Yeah. And his job was to stop him by any means possible from scoring. And there was this mano a mano approach. Yeah. And I remember the book written in the name of Nat Lofthouse called Lion of Vienna, of course, <laughs> in which he talks about the centre-halves he most feared. And to my utter astonishment, it turned out to be Dave Ewing, who played centre-half for City in the mid-1950s. And he didn't like it because he was as tough as Lofthouse. And then they got into a scrap. Loftus would find himself on the floor and Ewing muttering Scottish oaths standing above him. Now, those sort of battles were interesting. I mean, clearly that's what he remembered. And my question to the two of you is simply, has that gone now out of the game, that five versus nine? And do we miss it? Of course, if we're talking about physical battles, we have to talk about Billy Whitehurst, the man who, when told that he'd been left out for the game, went in surveyed this lad who'd got the number nine shirt on his peg and said, what are you doing there? And the boy said, I'm playing at centre forward, at which point he nutted him, <laughs> broke his nose, and the boy, there was a change in the team that day. <laughs> Billy Whitehurst played that game. Now, he was tough. We'd forgotten about the toughness. Andy Lockhead oh, was gosh, a, yes. immensely tough, and there were cutthroat centre-halves, a bit like Dave Ewing. Dave Ewing was no football purist, was he? No, Rosette. Rosette no. was his favourite player Correct. to put the ball, yes. And the Bolton fullbacks who played against Stan Roy Hartle and, and... Tommy Banks. And Tommy, Tommy Banks, Banks. Yeah. So there were physical battles. You know, you have to remember centre-forwards of old, they had physical battles as well. They tended to be tough, very physically strong. Greaves was pretty strong. Mm. There were people out after him yes. would kick him all over the place. We've mentioned yes. it about best before. Yes, They had to be brave to get into the area to score goals. Absolutely, yes. Greaves and best seemed to have that extraordinary balance that allowed them to ride, well, at least for most of their career, to ride the challenges. Yeah, the business of man-to-man conflict between centre forwards and centre halves. When you see that in the game now and the commentator says something about, oh, those two don't like each other, I must say, 
even as a purist, I lick my lips and I think, well, they bloody shouldn't, should they? No. They're not paid to like each other. I suppose that naked Whitehurst-like confrontation kind of went out uh, 80s, 90s. But I remember a wonderful quote from Kenny Burns, who was a converted centre forward, who became an outstanding central defender. And he said, talking about aerial collisions, where often the centre forward, Billy Whitehurst, for example, wouldn't be looking for the ball in the first one. He'd be backing his head into Kenny Burns' nose. There's break number 27, you bastard. And he said, he said, I don't mind that. He said, I don't really feel, honestly, never really feel the game started until I can feel that trickle of blood in the blood down my throat. <laughs> so there was a crudity, but an, uh, I suppose... It's not honest, because they weren't honest in the sense that I no. mean honest, but there was a naked aggression as opposed to the concealed aggression yes. that people are getting much better at these days. Yes. But the great goal scorers rise above it. And I remember seeing Jimmy Greaves on a documentary before he became sadly very ill, so he must have been in his what mid-late 60s, and he was saying to the camera, you know, he was playing football in the garden with his grandson, who was seven or eight, and he was saying, I can still do what I used to be able to do. I just can't do it at the speed that I used to do it at. <laughs> yeah. That slate of foot, he hadn't put on any weight, and the slate of foot that he had at the time yeah, yeah. was absolutely you know, remarkable, and that's what, what made him so good. Jimmy Greaves was a play you went out to see. Yeah. Yeah. The other one we haven't talked about, almost from the same era, and we have to, is Dennis Law. Mm-hmm. Dennis Law was a magnificent goal scorer. The bit I remember about Dennis Law, of course, was his ability to, although he was slight, to jackknife in the air. Yes. Most of the time you associate the great headers of the ball with being big physical specimens. Lockhead was obviously one. Ron Davis, Wynn Davis scored loads and loads of goals. Tony Hately. In the air. Tony Hately, correct. Who John famously couldn't play on the ground. So they said. Derek Kevin played for England in the World Cup in 1958. Mm -hmm. Jerry Hitchens also World Cup 1962, wasn't he, Jerry Hitchens? Yes, one of the early transfers to Italy. One who actually made his career out there. But law was different in the air, absolutely brilliant. The other one that you could have added to that list who had feet like Jimmy Greaves and was a big man was John Charles. Well, John Charles has an extraordinary record. Having played at centre-half a lot, still scored... I don't know, 150-plus yeah. league goals and so on. Yeah. Alan Clark is another one who struck me. We had him at Leicester for one season. He played at Fulham, of course, before. Yes. Then went up several grades and came to Leicester. <laughs> then who <laughs> promptly got relegated. That's happened before, isn't it? I remember my father saying to someone, what's he like, Clark? He was signed for us for a record fee. Somebody said, the nearest parallel I can take is a bit like Dennis Law. Mm. He was magnificent in the air and good on the ground. Well, he was like Dennis in another way, in that he went looking for fights. He was very, very, very yes. nasty, was Alan Clark. I was going to say nasty in a nice way, but a manager would say that. He would leave a foot in, you know. He would take defenders on at their own game, just because he had that impassive face, like the poker player's face. He was, oh my God, not averse to a, a tackle. And of course, he was... I think we touched on partnerships earlier, didn't we, Colin? That yes. He was part of a great partnership at Leeds with Mick Jones, who was utterly selfless. And then we went through an era of partnerships, Toshak and Keegan, virtually unplayable because Toshak couldn't be beaten in the air. And Keegan was 
very intelligent at running through onto the balls. And that's one thing I miss in the game because you need so many players in midfield now. I want to go back to the game that Paddy doesn't have quite the same reverence for that most other people do, which is the 1960 European Cup final, where we had seven goals to Real Madrid and four of them went to, I can't remember which way round it was, four to Puskas, three to Di Stefano, was it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. They were two great goal scorers, but neither of them were traditional, what we saw in England as great goal scorers. They weren't built the same way, they didn't play the same way. I mean, Puskas had no real speed. He was a bit tubby. One-footed. But he scored a lot of goals. He left Billy Wright for dead. Famously, yeah. A lot of it is this desire to score more goals. Funnily enough, Muller is obviously quite a common name in Germany. But following Gert Muller, the German centre-forward was a fellow called Dieter Muller for a time. And Dieter Muller played with Tony Woodcock when he was at Cologne. Dieter Muller had an insatiable thirst for goals. I can remember Tony telling me about they played pre-season games and Dieter Muller would not score one, he'd score eight (laughs) and things like that. He just absolutely lived and died for scoring goals. Yeah, you're talking about a German. I always think that the English are very goal-centric. You know, we revere strikers. And I think that that's because the English, you can relate it to the first international games, the friendly games, with Stan Cullis trying desperately to prove that long ball was better than 1953 Hungarians. You know, it's an argument that in a way probably still hasn't been resolved. But the English believe in directness. But can you conceive of a comic in which the leading figure played by Roy Race is a constructive midfielder or a clever (laughs) left-back? I mean, you can't. You can't. And Blackie Gray, who I think was his inside forward. Yeah, Blackie scored a few You know, was the assistant, but but Roy Race was the hero because he scored the goals. Let's not forget the great Earl of Boot, gorgeous (laughs) Gus, who used to hit shots. I think he was a sort of aristocratic Arthur Rowley. In that he would hit the ball so hard, the goalkeeper would save it, but he carried <laughs> by the, the momentum the into the back of the net. <laughs> yeah. With the expression, oof. <laughs> yes. I can't remember how Roy scored his goals, Colin. He just scored them. They were all looked like Bobby Charlton against Mexico. Oh, that's yes. right. They were, and there were little arrows. A, tra- a vapour trail that the ball Scored went, a lot of it? last-minute winners as well. Yeah. Scored more last minute winners, I think, than anybody. <laughs> His theory was that if he scored them in the last minute, the opposition would have had less chance to equal. I think that's true. Well, Whereas that the Earl of Boots scored them early on and then retired, <laughs> and his butler came on. I will tell one story about Francis Lee. Yes. Who must appear at some point. In the famous pre-season of 1971, when I was allowed to train with Manchester City, it now sounds bizarre. But I just wrote to Joe Mosser and he said, show up with your boots at nine o'clock on the first day of training. And I did. And Friday afternoon, we were, the only time we were allowed on the pitch at Main Road, because Stan Gibson, the groundsman, was very, you know, oh, Stan he thought Gibson. the pitch was great because nobody played on it, basically. <laughs> and we were allowed on the pitch in trainers only, not in football boots. And Francis was practising penalties. And he said to me, my nickname was Poet. He said, get in them nets, Poet. So I got in them nets because looking for Joe Corrigan saying, well, shouldn't he be here? Not me. Because it was actually terrifying him coming up. And he, so he scored the first three and I got, got nowhere near them. He said, I'm going to try something now. And he put one ball behind another, literally behind another, like something on a billiard table. Mm. So he said, I'm trying to get one in each corner with the same <laughs> kick. Right. So I thought, well, I'm going for the one behind. That's going to be less difficult to save. 
So he comes up, belts it, and I go for the one behind. And I not only didn't stop it, but I didn't get the feeling in my hand till the following Tuesday morning. <laughs> it, was just, it was the most desperately painful thing that I did during that time I was there. But it just proved to me that he was just fanatical about scoring goals. He was yes. a great goal. He was a great goal scorer and a scorer of great goals. Mm. But he doesn't compare with, if you look at statistics, he doesn't compare with Arthur Rowley. Mm. <laughs> who was the little, he's not a lad anymore, who was the little lad who played for Hearts? Scored hundreds and hundreds of goals, Paddy, but oh. then went to Newcastle and couldn't score. Oh, That's like Ralph Brand, who scored hundreds of goals for Rangers and couldn't score at Manchester Correct. City. Anyway. Yeah, there were one or two. Of course, Ali McCoy, now probably oh, arguably the best it? co-commentator, yes, yes. scored loads of goals north of the border. Yeah. Didn't score that many down at Sunderland, did he? It is interesting that the goal scorers for one club are bought on the strength of their being, you know, unstoppable goal scorers and go elsewhere. We, we talked about you know, Gary Birtles going to United, yes. Davenport. Yeah. And yeah. It, it does happen quite often that the magic can never be recreated at yeah. a new club. Well, let me give you one example. I'll start with a quiz question. Can you name two post-Second World War Manchester United goal scorers that are named after a flower? Yes, I can do this one because I saw the Andrew Nichols stand A play ah. from which this is named. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one was Violet and the other was McDougal. Now, exactly. Ted McDougal of Bournemouth. Yeah, Norwich, I think he went to. Ended up at Norwich. One of my early clients, Ted McDougal. Was he really? He was. But his goal scoring record was fantastic until Correct. Tommy Doherty signed him for. Man no, Franco Farrell signed. Oh, it was Franco Farrell. Sorry, yeah. I thought it was Doherty. Doherty mm. got rid of him, that's right. But Ted was very much a predator. He wasn't much of a footballer at no. all, but he played up front for Bournemouth. Actually, Bournemouth should have won the Champions League, really, because they had the front two of Phil Boyer and oh, yeah. Ted McDougall, because Boyer was much more mobile. Ted just waited. Went to Southampton. Yes. And City. Yeah. And, and, and neither City. really... Yeah became as good as they had been together. Well, Ray Crawford and Ted Phillips. Yes, yes. another We're talking example. about combinations, and we had the programme on Sir Health and Ipswich. Ted Phillips was a... He had a very hard shot. He, he was shot, a yeah. Arthur Rowley type, yeah. if you like. Yeah. Whereas Ray Crawford, who famously scored when Colchester beat yes. Leeds in One the, of the great as games, well. Yeah. You know, giant killing Ronnie Radford. Ray Crawford, that was the other great goal-scoring yeah. uh, moment. Yeah. There are people who we remember for great goals, as we've said, and people who are remembered for great goal-scoring feats. Mm -hmm. There are people who famously scored lots of goals in one game and then never scored many again. I'm trying to think. Mm -hmm. Was that Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, who scored seven in one game? Derek Payne, was that? Joe, Joe Payne. Oh, Joe Payne. Yeah, he scored seven goals. For Luton Town. Yeah, Yeah, Luton Town. Yeah, yeah. Yes. McDougal, hmm. they scored nine, didn't they, in a game yes. or something? Yes. And McDougal got about eight yes. or something. Yeah. That was what made his name. But I think he played for Scotland. He was decent enough, but yeah, only a goal scorer. Who was the greatest goal scorer you've seen? Me? Yeah. There must be a name that comes to mind instantly. Well, I mean, I suppose because of my age, Lineker, you know, I went to two World Cups where he was either leading scorer or joint leading scorer. You know, because I, unfortunately, one of my duties was to cover England. I, I saw all the games in which he played. But if you ask me who's my favourite goal scorer, the one whose goals I'd like to see all over again, every single one, it would be Robbie Fowler. Mm. John? 
Well, I've got a few names. Greaves, Gert Muller, obviously Lineker, Ian Rush and Jamie Vardy. Yeah. This is very interesting because the two names that top the list of every goal-scoring list you can ever think of have neither of them been mentioned. One is called Cristiano Ronaldo and the other one's called Lionel Messi and neither of them have made an appearance in this programme so far. Too modern. We are steeped in history, not in modernity, Colin. Far be it from me to complain about that, Mr Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) But I think of these more as as footballers than specialist goal scorers, even though they scored more goals than anybody else, as indeed Mbappe is. Messi's one of the best footballers I've ever seen in my life. And Ronaldo. I mean, these are just great footballers. The point of footballers to score goals, so they will score goals. But there it, is also the issue of Pelé, Maradona. These were iconic world figures who scored lots of goals and actually, in both cases, powered their teams to winning World yeah, Cups, yeah. which it was always the late, great Hugh McElvenny's complaint that Messi hadn't actually powered his side to the World Cup. Well, yeah. he has now. Powered is hardly the word for the goal that went in off his thigh, or whatever it was. Yes, but it was his influence and his performance. And you talk about Mbappe. Imagine scoring a hat-trick in the World Cup final and being on the losing side. I suppose Lineker was leading goal scorer in the World Cup and and didn't win it. Yeah, so was Harry Kane, Yes, yes, that's true, Well, they claim one went in off his ear, didn't they? I mean, there were as many teams with the leading scorer failed to win World Cups as as win goals. Just Fontaine. Just Fontaine. I think born in Africa, North Africa, and he scored 13, 13. goals mm-hmm. in a World Cup campaign for that would be 1958, which was won by Brazil. I simply cannot see Maradona as a goal scorer. He was a one man team. He would be minding the left back, drawing fouls. He would be doing everything. He was the bravest footballer I've ever seen. You could argue, Paddy, that Maradona's triumph in 86 for the Argentina was, in a sense, greater than Pele's in the grounds that he did drag them by himself. Yeah. Pele was the apex of a fantastic side of 10 brilliant players and a rotten goalkeeper. You could but very they, much uh, argue that. Uh, Maradona did it by himself. And you could also try and put the art of finishing into a little bit of context. If you look at the final of that tournament, 1986, which is against Germany, either West Germany or Germany, the Germans sacrificed their best player, Lothar Mateus, to mark Maradona out of the game. And he did, apart from on three occasions. Each of the three goals by which Argentina beat Germany 3-2, he played a part in, including the final pass to Valdano for the run-through goal yeah. and one of the passes that sent Burichago through. And he was fouled for the first. So that's the kind of influence that a great player can have just be, by being on the park and doing what he does, even if he doesn't finish. Cruyff scored goals. Not as many as no. the other great, great no. players that no, we've didn't. mentioned. That's right. He could score goals, of course. But he, in a way, I suspect if you spoke to Cruyff, he would say he didn't really regard goal scoring as that important mm. to him running the team, making the whole thing work. Yeah. It was people like Johnny Rep and the Ransom Bricks and all that lot. They scored the goals. The great Barcelona and Spain sides, they didn't, interestingly, have a really great goal scorer, did they? No, I mean, David Villa would be the closest. He was a goal scorer, but he wasn't a prolific goal scorer. All of them scored goals. Mm. Iniesta, 
actually score of great goals. Uh, the one at Stamford Bridge. Yeah. Last minute goal, I think, at, at yeah. Stamford Bridge. And also the one that won the World Cup. But Iniesta's goal scoring record over his career, I'd be surprised no. if it was better than one in ten. No. I'd be I very surprised. They're different kinds of players. They're great players. I think built into this. Let's face it, when we're small boys, we all want to be goal scorers, yes. don't we? They're the ones that get mentioned. They're the ones that people talk about, even at school. We had Alistair Campbell on. I remember Gary telling about a conversation mm-hmm. that Alistair and Gary had had. They were at the same school. And Gary confessed he didn't know of Alistair. Mm-hmm. He'd not heard of him. And he said to him, had you heard of me? And he said, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. we'd all heard of you. Yeah. Because, of course, he was scoring goals like they were going out of fashion. Yeah. Sixes and sevens in games and so on. Yes, you're right. Schoolboys do have this this reverence for the, the goal scorer. In the 1963-64 and 64-65 seasons, Manchester City were, you know, almost the nadir of my supporting at the time. They were playing in front of crowds of 8,000 people at Main Road. Did you go to the Swindon game? Yes, I was there, and I watched Summerby score for Swindon, which I've never let him forget. <laughs> yes, I was certainly there. And Alan Oak scored a fabulous goal. Brought it from 2-0 to 2-1, but we still lost 2-1. Don't track me down there. We had a fantastic, for a very, very short amount of time, we had two players who had done their job mostly at other clubs, Derek Kevin from West Brom mm-hmm. and Jimmy Murray at Wolves. Oh, in the late yes, I, I saw Murray play for City, yeah. Murray and Kevin, for a brief time, they scored a phenomenal number of goals. You couldn't keep them out at the other end, so we didn't get up that year, but there was a reverence for these two players. If I think of great goal-scoring partnerships, I don't think of Beersley and Linnigan. I think of Jimmy Murray and Derek Kevin. And ridiculous as it may be, it was because I was 13, 14 years old, and that's what you treasure, is if the ball went up to these people, the chances are that they'd get it in the net. I mean, we'd worked it out. If you've got a throw on the right-hand side, Bobby Kennedy threw it in, had a long throw. Jimmy Murray came to the near post, headed it on, and Derek Kevin, who hung around in the penalty spot, would come steaming in, knowing that if Jimmy Murray headed it back, headed it across the goal, he would get there. It worked over and over and over again. It was a fantastically productive move. (laughs) I still remember it, and I still treasure it. It had no subtlety, and it didn't take a long time at the blackboard to work out this particular tactics, but it worked on the field, and I remember it as a thing of beauty. 43 goals from 70 games. Jimmy Murray for Man City. And I'm just consulting my memory here, known as the book. I'll find out how many Derek Kevin scored. Manchester City, 67 games, 48 goals. Yeah. The most impressive record. Why the hell did you go down during that? No, no, we were down when we signed them in the when we were in the second division. What was then known as second division. But we didn't get up with them. And when Malcolm Allison arrived, first thing he did was get rid of them. He did not like either of them, and they went. But the thing about Jimmy Murray, he scored everywhere he went. My research team, all of them, thanks, boys and girls, um, (laughs) have just come up with some amazing statistics here. All he was doing at Man City was continuing an incredible strike rate of 199 goals in 273 games at Wolves. And he then, when he left Manchester City, Colin, you're, you're wrong. I think you've got the wrong Jimmy Murray here. No, no, I don't. Born in Elvington. I've got James Robert Murray. Yeah, that's him. Born Elvington, 11th of October, 1935. Wolverhampton Juniors, 55 yeah. to 63. Yeah. 
Hull won five five goals, two seven three games. Yeah. Manchester City seven forty three. Yes. Walsall, yeah. where he finished. Yeah. Thirteen goals from fifty three games. Hang on a minute, my research team are just saying something. <laughs> what do you mean? He's talking a little bit about it. <laughs> they've they've come up they've said that they disagree respectfully with your figures. They've just told me that. And well mine's the official PFA Premier League record. Oh, they say what do you say? Don't believe that. That's what they say. <laughs> it's a lot of crap. Not worth the paper. Yeah, well, you see, that's what happens when you employ vast numbers of research assistants. <laughs> <laughs> what they say is that after Man City, he went to Walsall, where he scored a paltry, by his standards, 13 in 57. But then... 53 games, but with four subs. Ah, really? And at Telford, how many do you have at Telford? They weren't in the league. No, I know. But what my researchers say is that despite the paucity of service from Telford's <laughs> non-league midfield, he still managed 19 in 39. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a new assistant <laughs> who's, who's going to come on and tell me that from another source, yeah. he has obtained Jimmy Murray. Yes. Let's have a look what this one says. 70 43, yeah, and 276 155. Uh-huh. My point is that nobody's ever heard of these guys, even the people listening to us who are knowledgeable and will remember football in the mid 1960s. Well, they will have heard of Derek Kevin, no doubt, because he played for England. But Jimmy Murray's probably slipped under the radar. But for us, you know, they were fantastic. For me, he was great because when I first went to Manchester back in the mid-60s, I suppose it would be, I just came in on the end of Jimmy Murray's career. So I watched him with Stan Horn, Alan Oakes, George yeah. Heslop. Johnny Cross. And particularly remember Harry Dowd in goal and the great Tony Book at right back, the best uncapped right back I ever saw. And Glyn yeah. Pardo was a centre-forward in those days, wasn't he? Uh, he? He moved steadily backwards. He went from centre-forward to right-half to left-back. Anyway, I mean, that was his progression. Anyway, all the Man United supporters who listen to Football Ruin My Life must be really loving this. Yeah, well, get your own podcast, is my <laughs> response. <laughs> well, listen, chaps, if you've got nothing further to add to the conversation, we deteriorate slightly. There, there's the odd name that we should add. Yeah. Yes, the subject on. of Wolves came up earlier. Steve Ball. Oh, yes, of course. Incredible record. Yes. And actually got into the England team. He did. In the 90 World Cup, got into the England squad. Yes. Not from the Premier League, did he? Yeah. And he came up from from the fourth division, didn't he? He came up with balls in the fourth. Yeah, but they were in the second, I think, when he got in. John Attio, Mm -hmm. who scored all his goals, played for England from the lower division, scored 200 plus goals. I would doff my cap to both of those players because they were loyal to their region and to their club. Steve Bull gave up opportunities to go away because he liked playing for the Wolves, and he loved the area. And the other thing about him, I don't remember Atio very well, except, uh, you know, I cut pictures of him out of Charles Gotham's Football Monthly and pasted them into his scrapbooks. But I don't remember seeing him, but I did see a lot of Steve Bull. And he, my word, you talk about goal scoring for entertainment. He scored spectacular goals. I mean, he would give it a good leathering. He also had a running battle with a centre-half that Leicester had called Steve Wolfe. Oh, yes. That was a battle royal, physical, (laughs) mental, and in goal-scoring terms. And Steve Wolfe, somehow you have to mention of him as a a centre-half 
who went up to centre forward in emergencies and scored goals from all over the I place. I remember Steve Walsh being, a, yes, playing at centre forward. He played a striker. He scored the goal that won a Division Two championship, call it what you like, playoff final. Mm-hmm. And also in the game that Bergkamp scored a hat-trick, an extraordinary game in which I think three goals, certainly, might have been four, were scored in added-on time, just as Colin accuses me of going into (laughs) added-on time. You've gone into Uh, third. Dear dear listeners, what happened there was, uh, for those not watching in video, which I suspect (laughs) is the majority, Colin, with an uncharacteristic show of aggression, pointed to his watch. <laughs> it was actually a, a subtle question to Paul, our producer, rather than an aggressive response to John at all. Both of you have contributed greatly and with typical knowledge, with the aid of your constant research teams, to whom I must acknowledge as well. Anybody with the answer to the Jimmy Murray conundrum, yeah. please send <laughs> their answers to footballruinmylife <laughs> at gmail.com. All, all, all one word in lowercase, apparently. Right, you lot do it. Right, I'm off. You do it. The two of you, I'm off. But before I go, I'm glad John said that in a way, because quite seriously, we are all interested in your memories of your equivalent of Jimmy Murray and Derry Cavanagh. And you must have them because you all support different teams and you will have those people who not necessarily are, are on the lips of every football supporter in the land. We would like to know who your great goal-scoring heroes are from your youth onwards. It's going to be very interesting and maybe we'll have a part two to this programme if so. we can get enough interesting yeah, results. So thank you again as ever to Paddy. Thank you again, as ever, to John. I'm not giving you the finger. I'm not giving you the wrist in future, either. And thank you again to Paul Kobrak, our producer. You can write to us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com and we would love to hear from you. But until then, it's from me, Colin Schindler, saying thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on Football Ruin My Life. Cheerio. Sorry we overran, Paul. You're better in black and white, Paddy. (laughs) Or or a magnificent celestial. Yeah, it's the medium in which I've spent most of my life. (laughs)